1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the programme, it's the iPhone's 10th anniversary. So what's next in store for Apple?
2: When augmented reality is integrated into the iPhone, it's quite possible and indeed likely that people will upgrade.
1: And we hear from the OECD's chief economist, Catherine Mann, about helping workers made jobless by globalization.
0: Why you lost your job isn't really the point. It's like you did lose your job. And so how do our programs having to do with job loss, how do they work in general?
1: But to start, yet more casualties in the Italian banking system. After the European Central Bank decided that Banca Popolare di Vicenzo and Veneto Banca were both failing, Italy's government has been forced to bail them out at an eventual cost of as much as 17 billion euros. That's 19 billion dollars. So a decade after the financial crisis, Italy's banks are still not out of the woods. They're reported to be carrying bad loans worth an estimated 350 billion euros. That's a third of the eurozone's total bad debt. I'm joined now from Milan by The Economist's finance reporter, Alexander Fatal. Firstly, could you just... Describe uh, as simply as possible what this deal involves. What what does what the bailout look like?
3: Basically, the Italian government has decided to split uh, the two banks, good assets and bad assets. Uh, so the good assets will be sold for a token one euro to Intesa San Paolo, which is Italy's second biggest bank. And the, the bad ones will be put into a bad bank and then, because Intesa San Paolo wants the, the whole deal to be capital neutral for its balance sheet, the Italian state is going to put in 4.8 billion to Intesa to help cover integration costs and will also put aside 12 billion in guarantees for potential losses. So that comes to the 17 billion potential taxpayer money that, that you were mentioning.
1: And what had gone wrong? Were, were these banks just badly managed or was it that the Italian economy has been so badly that the build-up of bad debts became unsustainable?
3: Both of those factors. There'd been a long history of mismanagement and to some extent some criminal activity as well. And um, the, obviously the kind of long economic crisis exacerbated that. And then, uh, so last year there was an attempt to put more money into the two banks after the ECB had, had said they needed to boost capital. Um, so uh, the Atlante Fund was put together at the behest of the Italian government, whereby like, the stronger financial institutions put money in. Um, but that proved to, to not be enough. And this year, the, the banks required further capital. And after several tries basically to raise more private money, the ECB, as you said, de- declared last week that they were failing or, or likely to fail.
1: So how has the Italian government been able to get away with this?
3: The regulators decided that the two banks were not big enough to, to be a systemic risk. And therefore, it wasn't in the public interest to put them into resolution as set out by rules brought in in, in 2016. So instead, they've, they've gone for a slightly different a solution whereby the banks are liquidated under Italian solvency law. This means that the Italian government is allowed to put in money if it considers that there is a threat of regional instability.
1: Now, of course, just a few weeks ago, we saw another sort of bailout called a a precautionary bailout, wasn't it, of a big bank, Monte dei Paschi di Siena. Are we now at the end of the line for the Italian banks, have we finished all this, or uh, can we now look at a, a system that is basically on the road to recovery, or might there be more shocks waiting ahead?
3: The hope is that now the biggest problems are on their way to recovery. The Monte dei Paschi di Siena deal is close to being finalised. In fact, the the fact that the two Veneto banks have been Resolved without the use of funds from the Atlante Fund uh, means that that can go to resolving uh, Monte dei Paschi's non-performing loans problem. So and that should be resolved this week, hopefully.
1: Alexandra Fatal in Milan, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Next, it's the iPhone's 10th anniversary. When Steve Jobs unveiled the product a decade ago, Few could have known how it would change the world. Fewer than 4 million were sold in the iPhone's first year, since it's become arguably the most successful corporate consumer product of all time, with well over a billion sold. But how much is Apple itself now dependent on the iPhone, and how might it evolve? I'm joined from San Francisco by The Economist's US technology editor, Alexander Switch. How much does, does Apple's business itself depend on the iPhone now?
2: Apple is really an iPhone company. The iPhone accounts for around two thirds of sales and profits for Apple. And so it's been an incredible boon At this point, though, it's both a curse and a blessing because it's been so incredibly successful for Apple that the company is dogged by questions of what could possibly be next for Apple that would rival the iPhone. And Apple's answer, it's come up with a few answers under Tim Cook, uh, who took over as boss shortly before Steve Jobs died a few years ago. And they've released the Apple Watch, which is a wearable device. They've also released uh, what's a, considered a hit product, which are wireless headphones called AirPods that look like traditional earbuds but don't have the wire dangling down. Um, These can be great businesses. Indeed, the Apple Watch is estimated to be a few billion dollars in sales a year. But compared to the iPhone, uh, they're completely eclipsed. So the question is, what could that be that could possibly help the company diversify? That won't just be a sideshow after the iPhone
1: But that sounds almost to suggest that the iPhone itself has reached the end of the road. Uh, uh, Isn't there something that, you know, the iPhone 21 might be completely different from the one we have now? I mean, how are they looking at developing that product itself?
2: I imagine that the, the executive team at Apple consistently rolls their eyes because people have been saying peak iPhone for many years now, actually. And the reality is that the iPhone has many years left. I don't see the mobile phone not being the predominant platform for many years ahead. You know, there's talk of uh, augmented reality and other things, but indeed, actually, augmented reality is gonna be a capability that's integrated into smartphones to start. And so when Apple releases its new iPhone, It will be unveiled this September, and it's going to be a special one for the 10th anniversary, it's expected to have some augmented reality capabilities. So you'll be able to point your phone at a room and be able to see what furniture would look like there. Um, Snapchat um, and what we see with their filters, where people are able to distort their faces and their environments, is kind of an indication of the early stages of AR. And of course, it's going to transform many other industries from commerce to mapping. And So when augmented reality is integrated into the iPhone and the phone will also have a longer battery life and some other snazzy features like a a curved end-to-end screen, it's quite possible and indeed likely that people will upgrade. So we could see as many as 300 million iPhone users upgrade this cycle. So there's still growth ahead for the iPhone. It isn't going to be as steep as what we saw over the last 10 years, though.
1: And how much do you think Apple still misses its founder? How much is it still Steve Jobs' company in in his shadow?
2: Apple has definitely done things that Steve Jobs would never do. And so it's now run by... Tim Cook, who is really an operations CEO, he's extremely good at this. But things like buying back shares, and they've started a share repurchase program that will amount to a couple hundred billion dollars. I think even kind of the. You know, Steve Jobs was opposed initially to offering the App Store on Android, um, and you know, d- really wanted to keep a closed system. And I think that Apple has been more open in brokering enterprise partnerships with other businesses. Tim Cook has definitely made his mark on the company. The question is, is it a boring mark or is it a, a really innovative mark? And I think that even analysts um, th- trust him from an operation standpoint but are still waiting to see evidence that he has that innovation gene. Um, and so I, he's Steve Jobs is incredibly missed. He's probably the toughest act in history to follow. Um, so without Steve Jobs, I think Tim Cook would be seen as a remarkable, remarkable CEO. I think that We need to see what he comes up with in the next few years. And Apple is spending about $10 billion a year on research and development. That's going into something. So in the next few years, we'll finally see what that is, whether it's smart glasses, a car, more healthcare stuff. There's tons that they're working on in secret, we assume. But they're very quiet about what they're working on, and they'll unveil it when they're ready. And I think that's when we'll really know whether Tim Cook will have a legacy
1: of his own. Alexander Siewicz, The Economist's US Technology Editor, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Simon.
1: If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as the problems facing Italy's banks or what Apple needs to do to stay preeminent in the mobile business, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. And finally... The political events of 2016 were seen as a backlash against globalisation. Even promoters of free trade admit they may have been too blasé about its impact on those who lost out in the process. So over the past few months it seems that every multilateral institution, from the World Trade Organisation to the International Monetary Fund and the OECD, has been opining on how to help those left behind by globalisation. The economist Samir Keynes has been talking to Catherine Mann, chief economist at the OECD, about how assistance can best be administered.
0: There is a real problem to be fixed. There have been a lot of people left behind. I mean, we can look at the data and see what has happened to the income of the lower 10%. It has fallen since 2007. and has never recovered. The top has continued to grow. So there is a real problem that needs to be fixed. Well, cross them. And even in, the, even in the emerging markets, the gap between the top and the bottom have widened, even if the bottom has done better. So however way you look at it, there is a widening gap. There is an issue of inequality. For those left behind, they have really been left behind. So yes, there is a real problem that needs to be fixed. The question is, is it globalization? And should our response kind of zero in on globalization as the locus for our analysis, for response. It's broader than globalization. It's technological change. It's the changing buying habits of consumers. And it is also trade. So it's not just sort of a trade focus on the borders type of issue.
4: There are already policies to help with people who are displaced, dislocated, who lose their jobs because of these big forces. Are there any that work well? What's the best practice?
0: It's very challenging to focus on just policies to deal with trade, because it is hard to identify who lost their job because of just trade. And there's also a sense in which the way, you know, why you lost your job isn't really the point. It's like you did lose your job. And so how do our programs having to do with job loss, how do they work in general? Different countries have very different approaches to this, and some of them work better than others. Can you
4: talk through some of the problems in practice with implementing these, you know, fixes on right. the ground?
0: You know, one of the big problems with getting people to move from having lost their job to, to, to having a new job is first there's a set of issues with regard to skills. Then there's an issue with regard to mobility. Do they want to move? Can they move to a place where there are new jobs? And then there is a question of, you know, expectations. Many people don't really want, or some people anyway, don't want to change the job that they had. They, they want their old job back. And so in some cases, that's just not possible. So first you have to get over that. Then you have to deal with the skills. Then you have to deal with the mobility. So it's, it's a real package of issues that need to be addressed. There's one policy out
4: there which um, is part of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program in America where workers over 50 get wage top-ups. And so, you know, there's a kind of acknowledgement that they're not going to find a job that was as good as the one in the smelter that got closed down. And so, you know, to ease the transition, they get a certain
0: fraction of the wage difference Mm -hmm. paid to them. Can that be a good idea? It is a good idea because, I mean, there's – if you're going to make a change, you're getting a a new job in a new place with a new set of skills, you aren't going to have the job that you you – you're not going to have the same income as you had before. But if the idea is that you get on a new ladder so that you're going to advance again and you're going to get a higher wage in the future, the transition is made easier if you get a wage top-up. It also helps with some of these other issues with regard to mobility – gives you a sense that that this new job that you're going to in a new place actually has enough income in it to make it worthwhile to make the move.
4: One thing I've been really struck by looking into this is the lack of good empirical evidence about whether these programs work. And there seems to be a problem in that often... You might be able to look at the short-term employment outcomes of people who get these programs, but what you're really interested in is the long
0: run. Following people, you know, from technical aspect, following individuals longitudinally, which means over time, means you have to go back over and over and over again and survey the same people, because that's how you find out whether or not the long-term gain from these programs works out. That's not a survey strategy that many countries are able to do. There's one strand of thought, which is that we're focusing too much
4: on the individuals. And actually, these are bigger. These are regional economic problems. When, when a factory closes down, that sucks the life out of the place. And that's the problem we need to be fixing.
0: So the research that we've done recently very much does come to that conclusion. Now, that's actually a, a very good finding. Because what it says is that if we can identify regions that might be at risk, then we can think about policies to support either a transition in the region, an upgrading of the factory in a region before it becomes a job loss situation. That kind of identification. Is very challenging in a, in a political economy type of environment, but from a from a research perspective, if we can actually do that, it could have a lot of traction to deal with a regional problem, individuals, and create more livelihood in you know a certain parts of a country.
4: And the political economy problem you just alluded to is that, supposing you're a company, you might have a pretty strong incentive to tell. Whoever, that, you know, you're really, really struggling and you really need help. You haven't necessarily got great incentives embedded in there.
0: You don't have great incentives. But on the other hand, the company that's saying that it's struggling ultimately probably will. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
1: My thanks to The Economist Samir Keynes, who is talking to Catherine Mann, Chief Economist at the OECD. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist Or do visit Economist.com. And join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns